It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs. By the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Well, hello again, everyone. On the program this week, another airhead travel log. This time, we're going to speak with Marcus Best and learn about his 1981 GS and his round-the-world trip. William Plam, he is off this week, but will be back with us for another Tech Talk next time. Before we dig into things, I want to say thanks to Lawrence, who wrote in uh, via a PM on Adventure Rider. He filled in some of my missing memory chips about a breakdown and repair story I discussed with George Thomas. Uh, Lawrence wrote this. I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit. Uh, The fellow who saved your bacon in Dundalk, Darren, was a guy called Niels Peterson. And uh, that's right. I had forgotten his last name was Peterson. Apparently, uh, Lawrence tells me uh, Niels was a Danish immigrant to Canada back in the mid-80s, and that's where Lawrence made his acquaintance with him. He described Niels as the real deal, an excellent multidisciplinary tradesman, and in fact, he built a Stibe replica sidecar for somebody uh, in Dundalk or around that area that was indistinguishable from the original. So Lawrence, thanks for writing and clearing all that up. I will say uh, I've got some photos somewhere from that stay at Niels Peterson's place I need to dig up and maybe I'll get those out on the internet someday. Reminder, you can drop us a line, airheads247 at hotmail.com. We appreciate all the survivor bike stories that have been coming in. The next print version of this will be in the September edition of the BMW MOA Owners News. Want to say cheers to everybody in Scottsdale, Arizona, Portland, Oregon, and Edmonton, Canada, the top three cities for plays in the month of July. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in there. All right. Our guest this week is Marcus Best, who completed a round-the-world trip on his 1981 GS in two trips. The first was South America in 2007. Then he finished the remainder of the circumnavigation, so to speak, in 2008 and 9. So we'll discuss why he chose an airhead for this trip, his pre-trip preparation, on-the-road repairs. Of course, you can imagine there were many. Then the adjustment to daily life after a round-the-world trip on a motorcycle. Marcus has a number of archive posts about his bike and the buildup for the trip on Adventure Rider. It's under the moniker Rhodes a Colin. I'm going to spell that out. R-O-A-D-S-A-C-A-L-L-I-N. Rhodes a Colin is his ADV moniker. And so if you're interested in seeing some pictures and commentary that he posted about that buildup, check that out on Adventure Rider. Also, his old blog site, if you remember those, it's still up, Marcus, M-A-R-C-U-S, best, R-T-W, around the world, dot wordpress.com. So 
couple places you can find some other interesting information and pictures to go along with our discussion today. So off we go to an undisclosed location near Taos, New Mexico for a chat with Marcus Best on the Airhead 247 podcast. Pleased to be joined on the line by Marcus Best in Taos, New Mexico. And Marcus, thanks for taking some time to visit it to visit with us today. Uh, as I mentioned in the top of the program, you did a round the world trip uh, on your nineteen or on your R eighty GS. So I want to dig into that, the prep, the the trip, all that kind of stuff. My first question is though, what's the current status of that motorcycle? <laughs> Well, uh, I'm happy to be talking with you, and it's good to, to go back and look into some of this that was done quite a quite a few years ago. I took this trip 12 years ago, so going back through my notes and remembering how much research and detail and work went into the prep and all of that. But uh, current status is um, in the garage. It hasn't been ridden yet this year. Um my motorcycling uh, has changed pretty dramatically over the last five or eight years. After my around-the-world trip, I uh, got more into dirt biking. So I have uh, you know KTM 500, uh, a 300, um, and then more recently, I've been riding more trials bikes. So I have a, a Beta 300 four-stroke trials bike that takes up most of my motorcycling time these days. <clears throat> so when I do take the bike out, it's either just quick trips to town or maybe a fly fishing trip up in southern Colorado. I haven't taken any long-distance trips uh, over, you know, 400 miles in the last 10 years on my GS. I, you know, Marcus, it's, I'm it's not very... yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that. Uh, you you scratch that itch uh, indefinitely, I would say. <laughs> well, um, you know, while I was on that trip, I felt like I could go forever. In fact, it was a week before I bought my ticket, my plane ticket to return to the States at the end of that trip that I really felt like, you know, I could just continue to live like that for the rest of my life. And wow. when I bought that ticket, I realized that it was all coming to an end and you know, it's, things change. You get back home, and like you say, that itch was scratched. And, you know, I'm, I have a travel van, a Mercedes van that I've been working on the last three years, and the smaller bikes that ride on the back of that. So yeah. it's much more, it's, you know, traveling that way on a motorcycle, um, it's, it's, um, it's not comfortable. Um, there are a lot of aspects of that type of travel that, I don't really need to return to um, maybe smaller trips, but certainly a long trip like that, sleeping on the ground most of the nights for a year and a half. It takes its toll after a while, and it's nice to uh, to have a little shift in that regard. I bet. I bet. So you mentioned there you were going back uh, on your notes, reviewing some things in, in preparation for this. I went back to ADV Rider and saw a number of your posts on the, on the prep. Uh, and I, if I'm remembering correctly, I think some of that was you posted might have even been post-trip, where it was sort of a postscript of what happened um, and some notes there. But let's sort of let's rewind the clock back here uh, and talk about 
just the beginning of all this. So the first thing I want to uh, dig into here is the bike. Uh, this is a bike motorcycle uh, formatted program. We focus on that a lot. So tell me your thoughts on picking that uh, G slash S. Uh, what were your considerations? What year was it? And then maybe we can start to talk a little bit about the buildup and modification process. So let's go back a little bit and tell me how you decided on that bike and uh, what was it like when you got it? Yeah, uh, so back in 2000, um, you know, I was fresh out of college and uh, backpacking mainly is the way I traveled. And I ended up in Tanzania on this little island off the coast called Pemba. And I rented this guy's motorcycle. I'd, I'd had bikes when I was a kid and street bikes when I was in my teens. But uh, he had a, a little Honda 250 dirt bike, and I rented it from him for a day and rode around the island of Pemba. And at that moment, it's like a light came on, and I understood that that's the way that I wanted to travel. Um, so at that moment, I started envisioning what, what type of bike, how to do this, you know, the, the seed was sown and the wheels started turning. And <clears throat> I had, at that point, I had my uh, a 75R90S a BMW. So um, having that experience with the Airhead and uh, not a whole lot of mechanical experience, but enough that I knew that it was a simple enough machine that I could I could do repairs on it. It was very basic electronically. There's, there's not a lot. Uh, that can go wrong relative to the more modern machines. So, and then I started getting into, um, you know, the mystique of the R80 GS. <laughs> and once you go down that rabbit hole, you probably don't want to consider any other motorcycle. Um, I did have a friend uh, in Europe that had a, an Africa Twin. And of course, my friends here, a lot of them had DR650s or a KLR. And to me, those uh, the Africa Twin, I really um, was interested in, but they're not even available here, weren't at that time. And the KLR and the, and the Suzuki, they just seemed sort of like a, uh, a compromise in lots of ways. Um, and to me, the aspects of the BMW just really fit my style and what I what I wanted to do. Um, I, I like the idea that it had the shaft drive rather than having to deal with the chain. The dependability of the of the motor is, you know, that's one of the aspects that should always be considered on a trip like this. Um, and then, you know, just sort of the pedigree of the, of the bike being one of the first adventure bikes and enduro bikes ever ever created for a purpose that was similar to what I wanted to do. Um, that's that, that's pretty much as soon as I went down that trail of the already GS and I, I wasn't turning back. That's yeah. what I wanted. Yeah, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. I mean, being familiar with the 247 format, having owned the, the 90S, you've got a level of uh, comfort there. Um, that I, mm-hmm. I, can, I can understand that 100%. Had you read or looked at any other travels from riders who had done trips like this on a similar bike, Helge Peterson, Peterson, for example, or, or other folks, uh, Elspeth Beard? Um, well, I, it wasn't until I got sort of into the culture of, of the airhead travel 
that I was more exposed to the, to those people. I actually heard Elspeth Beard speak in Colorado at a uh, Horizons Unlimited event, um, but that uh, that was as I was planning my trip. So yes, those um, those definitely had some some influences on me. Of course, that picture of of Helga Peterson with the uh, it's Peterson, right? Yes, or is it Helgeson? With his bike and a canoe going across the Darien Gap, I mean, it's just the stuff that you dream about. So, yeah, some of that was in the back of my mind as I was uh, trying to find a, an REDGS and as I was building it. I wonder also about, and without digging too much into your personal life here, but I'm just curious, what kind of conversations were you having with family, friends, loved ones, other ones about preparing uh, for this, what kind of feedback were you getting from them, and also along those lines, what's sort of the the build up um, financially and mentally as as you're preparing for something like this? Because you really do ha- kind of have to get in the right mindset in in both of those aspects. So I know I just asked three questions there at one time. So uh, what are your thoughts on some of those? <laughs> well, um, so I I had traveled quite a bit before previous to these motorcycle trips. And so my family was very well aware that at any moment I could drop everything and be gone for months. Um, Somehow they were very comfortable with that, or at least they didn't express their anxiety as much as I, you, you would imagine that a parent would when your kid goes by himself to, you know, central Africa for two months. Um, So that was sort of already in place. Um, my job, I, I caretake a property in northern New Mexico. Um, at the time, there were multiple people working in that in that capacity, so I I was able to leave and travel for extended periods of time and have my work covered, and then be able to actually come back to the work. So it was really an ideal situation to be able to travel a lot, and that's why. I did and still do have that caretaking job. It allows so much flexibility. Um, as far as the money goes, um, I'm fairly frugal to start with, so I, I just instinctively save money and f- for you know travel mainly. And especially knowing that this was something I wanted to do, I, I, I understood that it would be a big chunk of my savings. Um, but that's just something that I was willing to do and ready to do and thought it was couldn't couldn't spend money any better than than the best type of education, which I believe is travel and the best type of adventure, which is travel on a motorcycle. Yeah. And mentally, um, how, how do you how do you prepare for that? I mean, you're in, in a sense, you're getting ready to embark on a big journey, uh, but you're looking forward to it at the same time? Is there some anxiety, uh, trepidation, second-guessing? What, what's going through your mind as, you know, uh, T-minus one comes comes down and off you go? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, it was sort of mentally and emotionally, it was sort of a, uh, it, it came in phases because initially in 2000, I think it was 2007 or eight maybe 2007, my big plan was not to travel around the world. My big plan was to fly the motorcycle to uh, Peru, drive to the tip of Tierra del Fuego, and then back up to Buenos Aires. And that was going to be my big motorcycle adventure. 
which I did. I flew the bike from Dallas, Texas, to uh, Lima, Peru. And at this point, it was pretty much a stock GS. I had an Olin's rear shock, but everything else was completely stock. And during that trip, I mean, of course, there's wrecks and trials and stress. And, you know, it's just pure adventure when you're on your own and a foreign country on a motorcycle. It's, it was just fantastic. So during that trip, I, I understood that that was not my big motorcycle adventure. I could dream way bigger than that. So actually, while I was on that trip in South America, I was already imagining my trip around the world. So I, I, I guess I wasn't ready to take that step until I had taking this first step of taking a four-month trip in South America. And that was sort of the catalyst or the springboard to be able to dream bigger and understand that not only was it something that was possible and and doable, but something that I, I just felt like I had to do, that it was something that I would enjoy doing. It would be a massive challenge, and that's I just put my nose to the grindstone and did the work and did the research, and a couple of years later, I, there I was on my trip around the world. Let's talk about planning and research and specifically how that manifested itself in preparing the bike. So I took, and I know you did this uh, trip in sort of two parts. Part one, uh, as you mentioned there, uh, and then the, subsequently uh, the later trip. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about just prepping the bike no, uh, regardless of uh, which leg you were on here. So uh, I made uh, just a few notes here. Some main points you mentioned that you wanted to address and some other details and modifications uh, that came up. And uh, let, let's just start with the front end. So it sounds like on the first leg of the trip, you still had the stock GS front end, uh, which is it's a little spindly, leaves a little bit to be desired. Uh, was there a modification then made on that for leg two? Yes. Um, so while I was in South America, of course, there's just so much more weight um, that you're dealing with. I think that really affected the performance of the front end. It just felt noodly in some situations and just not secure, sometimes not even safe in you know rough terrain with a lot of weight. Um, and I tried to mitigate that by getting, um, uh, I can't remember the brand, but there are a few different fork braces that you can get to stiffen up the front end of the stock GS. And I just, that still wasn't enough. So, um, oh, and by the way, my biggest concern about altering any of the geometry of that front end is how wonderfully a GS rides in, you know, like a twisty mountain road. It's Indeed. Like Indeed. Best feeling motorcycles I've ever been on, um, and also the 800 uh, cylinder is one of the smoothest engines. So I'm I'm not only going to increase the the engine volume to you know a thousand cc's that messes up with the smoothness of the engine, and then at the same time I'm going to change the geometry of the front end, which potentially changes the feel of the bike. So because of the lack of performance with heavy weight on these rough roads, I felt like it, it was a trade-off that I was willing to make. I still dream about how that bike rode before I made any of these alterations. 
And there's a little bit of regret there, but the trade-off was the success on this larger trip. So the first thing to deal with in my mind was the front end. So I went with a, a complete front end rebuild. There was a guy on ADV Rider um, who did a run of, of triple clamps that were specific for this bike, uh, specific for the 500-millimeter uh, WP Extreme uh, fork, which I got one off of a 98, I think it was a KTM uh, 250SX. Um, and at the time, <clears throat> I maintained the original geometry of, of uh, the GS by shortening the, the um, legs. Um, and then I just used the um, caliper and the brake and everything else that was on the SX. So um, and I also got a, a new uh, XL rim for the front, and I fitted a... I think it was a, a BMW, what was it, a CS was the fairing that has the little uh, signals that are kind of off to the side of the fairing. Oh, yeah, I yeah. Off and just made it more. <laughs> yeah, so I chopped the signals off uh, and used the CS fairing, which has the larger headlight and the little uh, windscreen as well. So it's a totally new front end from the triple clamp all the way to the to the. Uh, wheel yeah so you're using an excel wheel so you still had a tubed tire i would assume and then yeah that fairing i, I think i remember seeing a few pictures of that and if i'm not mistaken I, I don't recall it right now but i'm thinking of one like you would see on the the k bike uh of the mid 80s era the k uh c fairing or something like that where you say it had the turn signals integrated into the fairing uh, which yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. So the front end, uh, that's that makes a lot of sense. Uh, what you did, especially for a trip like that. Moving on to the engine. So you mentioned uh, some changes there. The BMW Motorcycle Owners of America and BMW Motorrad have teamed up for a ten percent rebate for MOA member purchases of original BMW apparel accessories, and all OEM parts. In essence, if it has a BMW motorcycle part number, MOA members can earn a 10% rebate on the purchase. Those of you doing a big refresh or restoration on your 247, no doubt this can save you some cash. Or maybe you're in the market for a new riding suit or jacket, those are included as well. Every purchase made at a BMW motorrad-based dealer in the United States for example, Max or Bob's BMW, or online at shopbmwmotorcycles.com, qualifies for the rebate. MOA members simply submit purchase information directly to the MOA for the rebate. Rebates are managed by the MOA, and members are free to support any dealer of their choice where original BMW parts, gear, and accessories are sold. This promotion is scheduled to run through the remainder of 2023. So if you're already an MOA member, well done. And you've probably already taken advantage of this offer. If you're not an MOA member, visit the About section of this podcast for information on the MOA's free one-year membership promotion and start earning 10% back on all BMW parts, apparel, and accessories.
Now back to our chat with Marcus Best. Moving on to the engine. So you mentioned uh, some changes there. Yeah, I just uh, felt like it needed more power. Uh, just the amount of weight and being able to pass vehicles. And um, I, I sacrificed the smoothness of the 800 and just bolted on um, pistons and, and cylinders from a 1,000. From a, I think it was a 92 R100 GS. Interesting. So this was and, this was sort of pre Cybenrock uh, kit days. You just went old school and just found the jugs and pistons and put and put them on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I kept the heads uh, the same, and I, I stuck stayed with the same carburetors, and just did a quick and easy, inexpensive bolt on, and it worked great. It worked really well until I did drive a, a Sieben Rock in Europe and and understood how much better it would be <laughs> if I had gone that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, moving on then uh, the dash. So you made some some changes there, obviously. Yeah, uh, when I was on that trip in South America, I had a wreck that pretty much smashed the 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 uh, panel and the headlight fairing of my GS. So I, I basically just made an aluminum plate that went inside of that CS fairing and then added some LED lights for signal lights and such um, and some switches. And I eliminated the ignition, so there's just a hidden switch within the fairing. Um, so, yeah, the, the, that was totally redone. And was that a... Which caused some problems later on. <laughs> uh, well, I was just going to ask you, so how, t tell me about that. Well, um, so you probably know there's a, th a three-watt bulb, a charging light bulb. Yes. It's integral for the charging system. And I had tried to, um, with, with the LED lights, I tried to replicate that uh, resistance in that, that three-watt bulb to not interfere with the charging system, and I thought I had it worked out. But then as I was in Mongolia, all the vibration those tiny, tiny little connections began to fail. And, you know, being on the side of the road with a, a cigarette lighter and a tip of a soldering gun to try to heat that up and redo all these connections and try to get the charging system to, to work reliably, it just was, it just didn't work. <laughs> so that's one of the things that I thought was a great idea to have these cute little LED lights, but you know, unless unless it's been tested and tried over rough roads and unless everything is, you know, in really good shape and solid, I wouldn't recommend altering that. I got you. So you Among just... Among other things. Yeah, you say so you just stay with the standard uh, bulb setup. That's something you would have kept stuck. Yeah. If, if my, if my uh, fairing hadn't been smashed to bits, I, I would have kept that in the first place. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah. Frame. Uh, lot. Also, yeah, go ahead. I just wanted to say uh, I, I did a, a huge number of alterations to this bike before and during and after my trip. But I met a guy in South Africa named Billy Gibson and his, his partner, Patricia Cotton. And he uh, had been, at that time, this was 12 years ago, he'd been on the road for, I think, five years on an R80GS just like mine except his is completely stock. He had the Olin shock in the rear, but everything else was completely stock. And he 
has been driving that thing ever since. So we're talking about 15 years on the road, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of miles without any trouble. I mean, he's a, he's a mechanic, so he's able to maintain the thing, but he has a totally different riding style. He takes it easy. He just, um, I'm a little more aggressive. And if I see, you know, a potholed road rather than going 20, to get through it, I'm going to go 65. <laughs> I'm going to break spokes and things are going to fall apart and the frames are going to crack. But the, the same type of trip can be done with an almost completely stock R80GS without trouble, just depending on your riding style. And there are all kinds of ways to do this. I did it one way, he does it another way. Um, but yeah, that's just. <laughs> my two cents about that. No, that's a great point and a and a great data point. I I, I think as well uh, that a stock bike is certainly capable of doing that. As you mentioned, the riding style makes a big difference, obviously there. But I think that tells you uh, in its stock form, the bike was certainly capable. But you have to take its limitations into consideration, uh, as this fella did. So. Along those lines, yeah. um, you're mentioning your riding style. I, I understand what you're saying. I mean, you see a, a, a bad road. Let's just get through this quickly, get on to the next section. That seemed to be your style where, contrastingly, uh, Billy, who you mentioned, would just sort of put it in first gear and, and take his time and meander around the potholes. That riding yeah. style you had obviously affected the frame. Uh, in, but was one of the probably issues you had with, with some of those rough roads. So uh, I guess we want to talk about here, did you do frame modifications on this, only on the second leg of the trip? So the first leg probably, was that still, was the bike still unmodified in that department? Yes, okay. yes, still okay. unmodified. And the only thing I did in preparation for the second leg of the trip was to uh, reinforce the subframe on the exhaust side mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, the exhaust itself is what supports that. I think it's the right right side of the frame. Oh, sorry, left side of the frame. Um, so I added a, um, some support there and also sort of gusseted some of the subframe attachment points. Okay, yeah. Just th because that's where most of the weight, most of the weight that, Typically, uh, you know, in the stock bike, you're not going to have an extra 150 pounds hanging from the subframe. Um, so I did reinforce that. But then as the trip went on, I can just talk about the frame if you want. Yeah, to please. Trip. <clears throat> so uh, everything held together pretty well until I was in uh, Ethiopia, northern Africa. There's some really, really rough roads. And not only that, I'm pretty sure I can tell you when my frame cracks. Um, a lot of people, I would, I would give people rides a lot, which probably wasn't very wise, especially when I was already fully weighted down. And I would do that on good roads, but at this one particular time in southern Ethiopia, this guy would not take no for an answer. He jumped on the back, just on top of my bags, and we only went about maybe eight or ten miles, but the road was really rough. And um, I'm pretty sure that is when the uh, right next to your foot peg, above the foot peg, where the pivot point is, there's a, a down tube. It's probably about an inch in diameter, and that thing cracked. And I wasn't aware of it at the time, but that crack created uh, sort of 
torsion within the frame that sent cracks further on through uh, into the subframe. So a country later, a week later, my, the weight of the uh, of my bags was causing uh, the entire subframe to sort of torque and then pushed the spring uh, of my rear shock against the wheel, against the tire, which would heat it up and heated the spring to the point where the, the shock collapsed, the spring collapsed. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah, so I uh, took it to shops, maybe three different shops, from Ethiopia all the way down to South Africa trying to get that repaired and to get it stabilized. And, you know, those welds would just be brittle and, and break and re-break until I got to South Africa. Um, and incredibly, there's a guy in Altus Pinar who um, had a GS workshop, which was dedicated to the R80 GS bike. No kidding. Very specific. No kidding. And I think it was only in existence for about three years. It shut down about a year after I was there. Wow. So you hit the sweet spot there. Yeah, perfect. Oh, man. I got I got so lucky. He was importing HPN frames from Germany and then building bikes in this uh, shop in Cape Town. And at the time, he was selling uh, one of his HPN bikes, and he was willing to sell it piecemeal or however I wanted to do it, I wanted that frame. <laughs> so I stayed in Cape Town for a month and I took everything off of my frame, which was, you know, a, a piece of junk at that time and put it onto a new HPN frame, which included, you know, all of the supports they have in different locations on the main frame, as well as a different subframe and extended um, uh, rear arm um, by a hundred millimeters. And then at that point I was able to extend my, um, extreme forks to the full length and get the, the massive wheelbase of the HBN adventure. Wow. So I mean, that's really that dramatically. Changed. Yeah. That's a huge yeah. transformation. Yeah. Huge, huge transformation. So spending a month there in Cape town, I made all kinds of <clears> other <throat> changes to the, to the bike and from that point all the way into Europe, I didn't have any trouble at all. And the frame is in great shape. Um, by the time I got to Europe, I did make some additional changes. I had, had the heads rebuilt there. Um, and then in, in Holland, there's a, a guy named Matt Beekers. He does a Boxer Toko, which you may be familiar with. I'm familiar with, with that, yes. Yeah, so I stayed with Matt for a week and, again, made lots of alterations and... Um, by the time I was at the end of my trip, the bike was ready for the for the adventure I had just been on. So, and then I even <laughs> did more changes when I was back in the states. So, it, it was a it was an evolution. It was an ongoing process that ended up with a, a really, really, really capable machine. But I had to go through all of those challenges to get to that point. Well, uh, in, in the end, you got there, and you know I think there's something to be said there for when you did the frame swap out fully realized your front end i mean man that really just had like i said what a huge change and that probably kind of invigorated you for the next uh part of the ride i mean it's almost like jumping on a new bike let's go i'm ready absolutely yeah it really was <laughs> 
And the difference in the geometry, I mean, um, the the ability for that bike after the with the extended swing arm and the extended forks, it was a straight line desert machine. I, I bet mean, it would just go forever in the dunes and you know crossing from in Chad and uh, Martania or Western Sahara. That thing it performed the way it was designed to perform. I bet. So a couple other things I want to cover here, and I don't want to sound like we're being negative Nancys here discussing all of the failure points that you had. <laughs> I mean, we're putting this in a bad light a little bit, but it's it's interesting just to note uh, what are the circumstances? What do you think were the causes? You know, could this have been avoided? That kind of stuff. So we're, we're not trying to uh, paint your bike in a bad, in a bad light here uh, at all. Sure, sure. Uh, um, so a couple of other things I noted here. So you had a bean can failure somewhere in Mongolia. Now, that was probably the original unit, so not too surprising. I had one fail on an 81GS with maybe, I don't know, thirty-five or 40,000 miles. In my case, <clears throat> I think it was due just to a lot of water uh, ingress. I live in a part of Arkansas where I have to cross creeks a lot just to get to my house, so... Uh, I'm going through water on a regular basis, and I think that just exacerbated uh, just failure of that ignition and that unit in that regard. Uh, you had one breakdown uh, fail on you in Mongolia, so tell me about that that experience and what, what, what did you end up doing to get it back on the road? Because uh, all this time ago, there are Today, we've got new, modern electronic ignitions. You've got a lot of different options. Back then, that wasn't necessarily the case. Right. Um, yeah, at the time, for for electronics, pretty much the only uh, upgrades I did was uh, the 450-watt charging system um, and the diode board. And I believe there was an Enduralast or some... Um, some company that did do a replacement for the bean can, but it seemed at the time like it was sort of experimental. Not a lot of people had mm-hmm. had experience with it, so I just stuck with the stock bean can. Turned yeah. out to be a mistake. I think if I were to do that again, I would definitely get rid of that part. Um, so yeah, that was that was a little bit discouraging when I, I went through the testing process to to isolate that the bean can was the problem. Can you open up the book? And it says, do not attempt to open, <laughs> Yeah, you know, discard and get a new part. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm in the middle of Mongolia. So I take the thing apart, and there's a little metal cup in there that spins, um, and there's an opening in it that creates a, it's basically a sensor with a magnet, and that spinning um, enables or, you know, tells the signal when, when to um I guess it's basically a type of electronic ignition. But that little magnet that's next to the sensor uh, by that spinning cup. And so when I opened it up, there's this tiny little magnet in the bottom of the bean can. Mm. So I basically just glued it back in a way that it avoided that cup spinning. And I think... Uh, whatever the cup was spinning on was a little bit worn out, so it wasn't really secure. It had a little bit of a wobble to it. So I did what I could to to um, keep the magnet 
away from that spinning part so it wouldn't get knocked off again. And, you know, epoxy and uh, three months later and it was still working. But it happened again in Syria, knocked the magnet off. I fixed it again, and after that, I don't know what went wrong, but the entire electrical system, it's like there was a weird ghost in there that I could not figure out what was happening. So from Syria, I made it to Cairo and had a new bean can sent to me and just replaced it and tossed tossed the bad one. Yeah. So yeah. it continued to cause odd problems electronically, until I could just replace the thing. Uh, yeah, I, I, I can imagine so. I mean, it it affects uh, basically <laughs> the entire running operation of the bike, you know, for lack of a, another way of putting it. So uh, I'm curious, yeah. too, yeah. You, you mentioned uh, getting the part back then. This is something we really didn't discuss. Uh, again, we're going back in time. Uh, it doesn't seem that long ago, although it may for you, but in, in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't too terribly long ago. But I would imagine even then, Marcus, uh, accessibility to parts, what was available, ordering through the Internet and locating, having things shipped. Did you tell me a little bit about that process and how it might be a little bit different today? I, I think we're probably maybe a little bit spoiled. One of the reasons so many airheads are still on the road today is because of great parts suppliers and enthusiasts like Boxer 2 Valve. William and Edward Plam at Boxer 2 Valve have years of experience with the 247 Airhead, dating back to their first repair shop and dealership in the early 1980s. Boxer 2 Valve stocks and sources only premium parts and tools, so no need to worry if you're getting a cheap pattern or shortcut part. They simply don't carry them. Boxer 2 Valve has extensively researched which parts are correct for your motorcycle. Just enter your year and model and you'll see only the parts that fit your bike. That takes the guesswork out of the ordering process. Real-time stock information that is also available, so no need to guess what may be on back order that could delay your project. Also, if you're digging into a repair for the first time, be sure to check out Boxer 2 Valve's video repair series. These cover both Twin Shock and Post 81 models and are great tutorials that go step-by-step -step through a variety of repairs and parts replacement procedures. The video series is a great workshop companion, one I've used many times over the years. So for all your airhead parts needs, Boxer2Valve.com. That's the number two, Boxer2Valve.com. Well, that was perfect timing, talking about parts and the commercial break. Now back to our chat with Marcus. Oh, yeah. it was uh, That was one of the big logistical challenges of, of the trip was to get these parts. And, and um, I, I, I would have to say that Horizons Unlimited was one of the best resources because they have communities of, of riders all over the world. But if you're in any trouble, you can just tap into that very open and welcoming community. So like in Cairo, I stayed with some guys, a Finnish guy and a guy from Canada who were part of the Horizons Unlimited community. And they helped me with the shipping. I had the thing shipped to them. They had a shop um, where I could work. They helped me do all kinds of work on the, on the bike. So um, in that case, it was those guys who helped me to get those parts. 
Um, I had met a German guy when I was in Mongolia who, by the time I needed a new starter, I was in Kazakhstan and he was already back in Germany. And I just emailed him and he was able to DHL something to my uh, hostel where I was staying in Bishkek. Um, but again, you know, to be able to get a Valeo starter to replace my failing Bosch in the middle of Kazakhstan is a pretty remarkable thing. <laughs> it is. It, it, <laughs> I think these days it would be a little bit easier. I mean, I was I was using paper maps, and I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have GPS, which I, I could have at the time, but I just preferred the paper map. Nowadays, I wouldn't even consider a paper map. It would all be, you know, like everyone has an iPhone these days. Yeah, interesting. Okay, yeah, you know, I know you you brought up a couple things there. I didn't even really think about. So you mentioned Horizons Unlimited. Which I assume that that's still a uh, uh, active community. You know, I haven't really been yeah. active within it, but I assume it is. I mean, it was such a robust yeah. international thing, not only with motorcycling but with overlanding. Right. So it's just a w wonderful resource. Yeah, I remember coming across that a couple times. You know, if I was searching for some information on a part or, or something for my bike, that in inevitably a link would come up from uh, from their forums or their website or something. But as you mentioned, yeah, it's based on the world traveler, so to speak, uh, and yeah. whether it's cars or motorcycles. That's probably I I looked at it from time to time, but there was other stuff going on there that didn't draw me to it. So yeah, anyway, that's yeah. an interesting point uh, in that is you were really relying on friends and people in the community to help source parts and get stuff to you rather than ordering directly from a parts supplier uh, or something like that. <laughs> yes, I do. I do recall one time I used to order from, I think it was Bob's BMW. Yeah. Yeah. And I had them ship some fork seals to general delivery in some tiny little town in Southern Russia. And I actually got them. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's the old school way to do it. Indeed, it, it actually worked. I was, I was really amazed. Yeah, you know. Uh, but just quickly back. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say on that. I mean, I've had some nothing that shipped that far to Russia or anything, but I've been on a few trips before where I've had to have something overnighted, and you know, it's in a remote location, and just your sense of re <clears throat> sense of relief. And almost the same time, amazement that, gosh, it it made it here. I can fix it. Thank goodness for for the network uh, that we have and that stuff like that can happen. It never ceases to amaze me. I, I can imagine your feeling when you got those seals. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, another thing I wanted to mention, I don't know if I have it anymore, but there is a list at the time circulating of parts that um, either Audi or Mercedes or BMW uh, automobiles share with the R80GS. Oh. So whether it's, you know, like uh, steering head bearings or um, there's all kinds of parts that you wouldn't think even crossed over, but that way you can go to uh, an auto dealer rather than trying to find a specific motorcycle place. Hmm. Okay. Find all kinds of things. Wow, interesting. Yeah. I didn't know such a list existed. I'm not surprised to hear that it does, but that would be neat to see uh, what what's available. Uh, okay, I'm gonna. I'll have to do a little research on that. 
Um, all right. So bean can, also another thing I'm curious how you handled this was uh, a failed steering head bearings. So let me ask you on the front end, I guess in either leg of that trip, was that something uh, that you did not change out on the front end that maybe you wished you had? Well, I n- I'd never had any trouble with those those steering head bearings mm-hmm. previous to the to uh, the pothole roads of southern Siberia. <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe I should have changed it out initially, but my bike didn't have a lot of miles on it. Yeah, I mean that when when I altered the front end, I put new steering head bearings okay. and braces and everything in sure, there. Sure, sure, sure. So. You know, they didn't have many miles on them at all, and it was probably because I had maybe I hadn't tightened them enough, uh, maybe too much. I'm not sure. It seems like there's a small window there that, if you're on really rough roads, it, it can give you trouble. I had to switch them out twice. Really, during the trip, yeah. Um, and those—that's one of those parts where um, the bearing and the race. I just went to a like an auto parts. Um, market in i think it was in kyrgyzstan and they had the exact parts they didn't have to be you know bmw parts right right for all kinds of machines so as long as you have the numbers and also i would say if you're gonna take those bearings with you um i did have one set with me and by the time i opened them up and i had you know duct taped them and wrapped them up really airtight vacuum sealed and still they were covered in rust no kidding so you're gonna take yeah if you're gonna take those parts as a as spares i think they need to be packed in grease to be able to to last wow so you've but, i mean that's amazing you vacuum sealed the bag you duct taped it you watertighted it you you know all this and still uh they ended up rusting i mean and that doesn't sound like it was a ter- they were in there terribly long either well, I'll say, I, I said vacuum sealed. What I should have said was Ziploc bag. <laughs> <laughs> okay. If they, if they had actually been, you know, vacuum sealed, they they probably would have been okay. Okay. But my cheap cheap version of vacuum sealing didn't do the trick. <laughs> okay, you folded the Ziploc bag over and pressed the air out. I guess is what happened. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. Uh, and so, yeah. uh, okay, so w- when you had to replace those. Uh, were you having to find a shop to assist with some tools? How did you, how did you manage that? Um, so at that point, the first time I replaced them was in East Trek, Kyrgyzstan, which I'm sure you're familiar with trying to get that bottom race out of the oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a real pain. So I was staying at a hostel, um, and the people there were just wonderful and were willing to help me in whatever way they could. So um, I was there for about a week. I was waiting for the Vallejo starter to come in and some other parts. Um, so I, I was able to borrow some tools from them, and they had an uncle that had some scrap metal, so I fashioned out of a chunk of rebar uh, a little bend in it and then sort of made a chiseled end and was able to hammer out that bottom race yep got it fashioned yep just with a you know a piece of rebar and a file and uh got it done of course i kept that tool with me luckily (laughs) (laughs) wisely because i I replaced them again when i was in cairo about four months later 
Wow. That, that was quick. So, well, I would just say that there are so many times where there are ingenious and helpful people all over the world. And I, I think part of traveling that much and uh, being in situations where you absolutely need help and have to seek out help, I sort of gained an understanding that no matter where you are on this planet, they're really, really sharp capable people that are willing to help you out. And it's just a matter of asking and allowing yourself to, um, you know, be in those situations and, and accept help from people that you never know who you're going to come across. that's going to be able to, to do amazing things with the problem that you have. So that is just a really encouraging thing about traveling for me. Yeah. Yeah. You bring, that's a great point. I mean, you mentioned at the top of the conversation, how travel is one of the best educational experiences people can have. Um, you know, I've had similar experiences where of course I'm not overseas, but just, you know, long travels in the United States where folks humanity and willing to step in, uh, I learned at an early age, it, it gives you a perspective on life that you, sometimes can't get anywhere else. So th- that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Also, a lot of these places, a lot of these places where you can't order apart from Bob's BMW, you have to make do with uh, what you have and the ingenuity that you have. So there are entire countries of people who just get by that way. So when I have a problem, it's not a problem for them. They do this every day of their lives, just trying to, you know, uh, make things work without being able to buy a part out of a, off, off the internet. Yeah. They just get it done. I saw, I remember seeing somewhere in a, uh, country somewhere where instead of buying new tubes, people would just vulcanize the rubber. They just heat it up and and repair it that way. Yeah. There was no patch kit. There was no buying new tubes. That was the way it was done. You you rebuilt the tube right, and, vo- and vulcanized it. Yeah, you rewind the rotor for your mm-hmm. <laughs> you know your charging system. You you take a um, a tire with a hole uh, a tube with a hole in it, and you glue it back together and sew it back together and put it back in your tire. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. All right, Marcus. Last thing on my list here, I wanted to ask you about just as far as repairs. Let, uh, I don't want to, let's not use the term failure. Let's just, let's just say, uh, <laughs> let's just say needed repairs uh, and expected repairs, I guess. I don't know. Uh, you had to get right. some head work done in Germany. So tell me what I'm curious there is, uh, how did, how did you know you were having, first off, how did you know you were having some issues maybe with the valve, uh, valves or valve seats or springs or something like that? What, 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 what brought that to your attention? Um, well, so what I, what I think happened and I'd adjusted the valves in Cape town and I checked them again when I was in Morocco, because there's a section of Southern Sahara from Chad, Niger, uh, Burkina Faso, Western Mauritania or Western Sahara. And it was unbearably hot. It was so incredibly hot. And I feel like during that time it was, you know, maybe a, two or three weeks of travel in the most intense part of that heat that the engine really suffered. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
I had those, you know, the arrow stitch combat boots. That's what I wore on the whole trip. And during that section of the trip, the soles on both boots melted off. Wow. <laughs> wow. So, so hot. Yeah. Um, so I think the heat did some damage to the engine. Um, I stopped at a, a garage in southern Spain, and they felt like it needed to be rebuilt. So it was just the clanking and the clattering, and it was beyond anything that I'd, I'd heard from the from the engine before. And I was really concerned. I was afraid I was going to have a full failure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, while I was in Western Africa. <clears throat> yeah. And so, so I took it to. Um, yeah. Um, I, I went to HPN, the you know their little shop in southern Germany. Um, talked to Klaus Pepperell for a day. It was really wonderful to see they they have a little museum there, um, and got some advice from him. They couldn't rebuild it themselves. They were they were backed up for months, um, but he recommended a place where I could have that done, and they replaced. You know, pretty much everything in the head, even the rocker arm assemblies, replaced all of that. And um, also dual-plugged the heads at that time, which is something that I considered doing earlier, just never uh, wanted to spend the money. And in this case, I was already paying them to rebuild the heads. Yeah, right. Had it dual-plugged. And then when I went to Matt's place in uh, Holland, he went ahead and added the... uh, extra coils and everything to, to have a true dual plug system, which I think was wise just to have that redundancy, even though it does, does add a little bit of weight. It, it does. And I would guess also uh, it's going to help you with, if you've got lousy fuel, which I would think would be a problem when you're tra- traveling the globe. Yes. And that was another consideration. And that, that part of Africa, the fuel, you know, you're buying it out of glass bottles, and you don't even know what it is or <laughs> yeah. if, it, uh, if it's even all fuel in there. So that was another thing that I thought might have done some damage. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I'm just glad that I was able to be in a situation where it could get taken care of. And so I guess the bike's still wearing those uh, dual-plugged uh, heads. Yeah, yeah, it sure is. All right, Marcus. So I, one I pulled out an interesting quote, and I think this was just might have been from some of your um, musings on ADV. Um, and again, we're going. Uh, I said we were not going to go over more of these failure points, but it looks like we're going to revisit one anyway here, <laughs> and uh, because it's related to this quote, which I really liked. This was uh in sort of a realization where you had a transmission failure very early on in the trip and we can talk about that but the quote i liked was uh is this i would have to force myself to be calm and methodical in diagnosing a problem rather than jumping to conclusions and chasing and chasing some ghost in the machine and i just think that's really insightful and i want you to expand on that a little bit sure um, well, I think, first of all, the transmission issue, and this is sort of re- rewinding, but um, I had I had my transmission taken to a local BMW shop, which I assumed would do a way better job than I could, and, you know, somebody that had some experience. And this was a, about a month before I left on my trip. Turns out they just really botched the job, and it sounded like, riding around with a 
with a transmission case full of gravel. It was just terrible. So I had to send it back to them to get that fixed, and it took them the entire month that I was going to spend testing everything. I was That was the time where I was going to try to get the kinks out and fix what needed to be fixed, but it took them so long to get the transmission done that I, I was left with no time to, to go through those tests, which was you know, partly a failure on my part, but that's something I would definitely recommend before you take a trip like this is just to have rigorous testing and experience with the bike before you take off. So um, I think that quote came from right when I left. I had sort of a going-away party. Everybody's here. I was all excited, get on the bike, <laughs> drive out the driveway, and I had gone about two miles, and everything shut down. I started sputtering. I had no idea what happened, so I pulled over. I've got my toolkit in my uh, uh, tank bag, which on top of my tank there. <laughs> Pull over, get into a carburetor. Everything seems nor normal. Get back on the bike. It goes great for another 40 miles this time. Same thing. It stops. And I go through this process maybe four times until I get to Grand Junction, Colorado. And... <clears throat> Um, met a guy named Robert Carruthers, who's a great BMW mechanic, and we puzzled over what this could be. We'd both gone through the carburetors, thought it was a float bowl, a jet, something that, that just wasn't getting fuel. And then he finally took a look at my tank. And you know that little uh, tube, that air tube that sticks out of the top of the gas cap? Indeed. Um, I had... My toolkit was in my tank bag, which sits on top of that tube, mm -hmm. and crimped it enough to create a vacuum within the within the fuel tank. So, um, as soon as I take off my toolkit to examine the problem, it allowed a fresh fresh air back into the tank, and then I could go for another whatever fifty, hundred, two hundred miles until that vacuum created again. So the entire thing it was ironic that you know, grabbing my tools to diagnose the problem was actually what was causing the problem, having my tools crimping my, uh, that little rubber tube. That is so, a, a bit ironic, indeed. <laughs> so the entire process, and any time I have trouble with a bike, as I'm driving, my mind is just spinning, and, you know, the wheels are spinning trying to figure out what it could be, and often I would jump to conclusions, like in that case, I knew it had to be something with a float bowl, or I knew it had to be something with, and I was just totally wrong. I, 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 I feel like sometimes the answer is just right in front of you, and it's a lot easier if you don't jump to conclusions and spend all your time and energy trying to fight something that um, you know, it just wasn't a problem in the first place. Yeah, uh, that that's just a really great point. I mean, we all suffer uh, at one point or another from sort of over-analysis and worst-case scenario thinking. I mean, I've been there. Um, your problem there is is example A, I would think, and I, I'm 100% with you. You'd be riding and you're thinking, God, you know, I just, I just did this. I rebuilt the carbs i must have done something wrong you know and then you, you go yeah. to the worst case possible scenario you know we're like oh you know maybe it's the butterfly valve and i've got to take the carburetor apart and you know do all this 
And we've all been there. And that that is really just a great example of having to recalculate your thinking and start at at zero with the basic simple stuff. The the perfect analogy here is um, uh, in the Billy Bob Thornton movie Sling Blade, where they're trying to figure out what's wrong with the lawnmower. It won't start, and the character Billy Bob's character just says, "Well, has it got gas in it?" Yeah, <laughs> that was yeah. the that yeah, was the I- problem. And, you know, from time to time, I have to remind myself of that mantra, you know, quote unquote, as it got any gas in it. And in your case, it didn't. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Just just because of that. Yeah. Well, that's I I really appreciate your thinking there. Uh, That that just makes a lot of sense. Um, Okay, so we talked about um, you still got the bike. Uh, you mentioned something, though, at the again there at the top of the conversation, which I want to expand on a little bit here. As you were coming to the end of your trip, your thought was, gosh, I, I, I could continue doing this. Uh, you were really enjoying yourself, as you mentioned. By this point, you had the bike dialed in with the HPN frame, longer swing arm, suspension. Yeah, we mentioned, you know, you probably felt a little bit invigorated. What what kept you from from doing that? I mean, were, did you actually have a thought that said, I don't have to go home, I could do this? Or did you have plans or, or, or other things? How did that how did you rectify that in your mind? Well, I did sort of have an end date because I did need to come back to work and, um, well, make some money. It, it did cost a fair amount for that trip. And once you're out of money you're out of money. Yeah, (laughs) there is that. Yes. Yeah. And if, I don't know if I, if I had, um, inexhaustible funds, um, and no connections back in the States, you know, I probably would have lived a lot longer in that, in that fashion. Um, but you know, that's the other thing about going around the world. I definitely had this, intention to circumnavigate the thing and i was in ireland about to fly my bike back to new jersey and drive back to taos and arrive you know in the direction the opposite direction from which i left a year and a half ago so there was eventually that sense of completion like uh, that was my goal that's where i'm headed and that's where it's going to end yeah yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Tell me about, I, I'm curious, you land in the States, you're sort of back on familiar uh, uh, familiar confines, you start seeing all the sort of typical American things, and I'm not bemoaning this, but, you know, the McDonald's and the, you know, shopping malls and things like that. Uh, what was, what yeah. was, what was it like, what were your thoughts when you landed back in the States. Obviously, you're glad to be home, but I'm sure you're comparing and contrasting other places that you had been in the world, and now here you are back in the States. What kind of stuff was going through your head? Oh, yeah. it's It was just really um, pretty shocking, I guess, um, because, you know, in my mind for the, for the last year and a half, 
going through some of those challenges and being in some of those places that um, are so starkly in contrast to any part of the United States. And then to be, I remember I, I was in, uh, I landed in New Jersey and I saw some of my friends and ended up in New York City for a while. And, you know, I, w- I wore a pair of, one pair of Carhartts for basically every day for a year and a half and just dirty and you know how it is adventure riding you're you're usually a long ways from a, a shower and a bed and I, I just felt like I'd been on this grand life-changing experience and I'm sitting on the subway looking around at everybody else and going you know on their commute to work and listening to music and not talking to anyone, just sort of staring at their phones or whatever. And I just felt like I was a foreigner in a foreign land or like I'd landed on another planet. I just felt like my experience was so far removed from the day-to-day lives of 98% of the people there that, and yeah, it was just a juxtaposition that nothing really prepares you for that. And um, yeah, it took a while for me to settle back down to to uh, whatever normal life was at the time. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about that. So suddenly you're back, quote unquote, working. You've got a daily routine. Um, was it difficult to get out of travel mode back to sort of uh, working Marcus mode? Um, it, it was fairly difficult. Um, but it's funny, where I work, um, I take care of quite a few dogs. And at the time, um, my therm arrest, I think it was on, I, I had washed it and I'd left it out to dry, you know, just sort of unpacking my stuff. And for whatever reason, one of the dogs decided to shred my therm arrest to pieces and scatter it all over the front yard. So at that point, I thought, well, I guess I'm not going to be sleeping on the ground for a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, fortunately, my my work is very. It's not regimented. I don't go to an office. I don't, you know, I, I caretake a property, which uh, is a lot of outside work. A lot of um, manage my own time. I'm my own boss, so I didn't have to jump right into the rigidity of of you know an office job or a sure. nine to five job. Sure. And I think that made it a lot easier for me to be settled and be comfortable and and you know part of me does enjoy you know being at home in front of a fire in the garden yeah i have i do have some of that nesting instinct yeah every once in a while my adventure uh mind gets triggered and i have to get out of taos because taos is a you know it's a small town and part of the reason i'm I'm able to live here and, and do this work is that I'm able to travel a lot. And so it's that, that uh, combination that provides balance for me. And after having traveled for a year and a half, I think maybe I was ready for more of the balance on the other side of being able to to be a little bit more grounded here in Taos. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And you bring up a good point. Um, it's somebody coming off a trip like you took, for example, uh, and then having to go back to a, yeah, going back to an office job or something really super regimented. I mean, that would be a really, I would think that would be a really difficult transition. And you'd 
could be just questioning your entire existence uh, with with such yeah. a I, such a juxtaposition uh, of those two lifestyles. But it sounds like um, yeah. it sounds like you've got a good setup uh, out there. So uh, good for you. Um, all right, Marcus. Yeah, the, let's uh, a couple more things I want to ask you about here uh, before we wrap up our chat. Uh, this is a pretty basic question. I think I know the answer to this, but uh, would you take a trip like that on an airhead again? Yes, I would. I would, yeah. Um, you mean as opposed to another bike? Yeah, yeah. Knowing what you know, going what, going what you, you know, went through and all those sort of things, uh, would you, let me rephrase that then. So if somebody said, let's put it this way, uh, you've got two years to circumnavigate the globe. Here's a R80GS. You can prep it up how you like, or here's a new ADV bike model, whatever. Uh, if you had your choice, then maybe let's put it that way. Would you do it again on an airhead or would you find, do something absolutely, more modern? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. No, no, no question about it. I mean, um, I think it's even more, um, more, it applies even more today than it did when I went 12 years ago. With the bikes now, <clears throat> there's so many situations that I feel like I was able to work my way through, and we talked about a lot of the issues with the airhead. Um, but if I'd had a similar issue with a more modern bike, and especially the ones these days, you know, it's a, it's a trip-ending electronic failure or whatever, nobody's going to be able to come up with a diagnostic computer to be able to figure out what's happening. Um, I still think one of the biggest advantages of the Airhead platform is that it's such a, a mechanically basic machine that even if there's some problem that I can't figure out, I bet there's somebody right around the corner who can. And I don't think that's the case with a modern, a modern bike. I heard, uh, heard. I read a, read a quote somewhere recently uh, that made a lot of sense to me, relating to airheads and and their robust design and what the attraction still is. And it's good to know after all those miles and years, you would still do that trip. But the quote was uh, something about I'm going to paraphrase. The airhead has rebuildable quality, which, if you think about that statement, it makes a lot of sense. Yes, it does. Yeah, and I, I would definitely agree with that. Yeah. Um, and that, that's, that, for me, is for a, a trip of this scope, which, um, you know, goes to all different countries, all different regions. I would say if I were going to a certain region of the world, um, I would probably choose a bike that's sort of endemic to that, that part of the world. Like yeah. if you're in India, you go to India and you... you you get a, um, what are they called? Royal Enfield? Uh, yeah, you get an Enfield because every every motorcycle mechanic in the country knows how to work on an Enfield. Yeah, somebody told me, I think I was, I think it was uh, another GS traveler who I interviewed, Daniel Rents, who you may or may not be familiar with, but uh, he, and this was post-trip, but he said he, he recently did a sort of, excursion uh on a on a royal enfield and he said the 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 bikes and the parts are so ubiquitous they're even in like gr grocery stores and things you know <laughs> which is i mean how great is that you know 
But uh, that no, you bring up a great point. Um, yeah, you're in India. You ride a Royal Enfield. You know, maybe you're in Italy. Uh, how about uh, you know a Ducati or something? So that that makes a sure. lot of sense. And then in that case, you probably could go with a more modern bike because um, you know if you're in Japan and you're on any Honda, you're going to be just fine. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> isn't that the truth? But but again, that's what makes the Airhead when it's a, a trip of this scope, which in, encompasses all of those regions and all those places, then I, I think going back to that rebuildable uh, quality is, is a really, really valuable feature. It is. All right. Here's a question I ask a lot of folks. I'm going to re maybe rephrase this uh, in a different way. But what I generally ask people is if they could go back in time you could change one design element on the airhead model run. So again, we're looking at 70, 1970 up to 1995, 96. Uh, if there was one design element, you could go back and tell the engineers, I'm putting, a, putting my foot down here. You are not going to build this part or design <laughs> into the motorcycle. I'm going to save humanity from this problem going forward. Uh, I wonder if there's one that that if you could have that opportunity that you would do <laughs> it's got to be the seat latch on the solo seat <laughs> gs i mean i broke probably four of those things before i just gave up <laughs> terrible design <laughs> no um the, aside from that um there is one thing that i never really figured out maybe you have a solution for it but um you know the uh, the spindle or the shaft for the rear brake that goes through the uh, final drive. Yep. And there are those little little rubber O-ring seals that are supposed to keep all of that oil from the final drive from leaking out. I have never had a combination of seals, stock or otherwise, that have kept oil from leaking out of that part of the final drive. It drives me. Crazy, really? Can't so tell you how many times? Yeah. So that's that's on your. Uh, so and what year is your GS? What year model? It's an eighty-one. Okay, yeah, mine's the same. So, no, I haven't had that problem. I would have to guess it was just that's a casting issue. Maybe it's a casting. Problem. That would be my Did first. I even looked at. That would be my first thought. I mean, okay. you just might okay. have might have a situation where you know maybe the. The bore's a little bit too big or whatever. The seals aren't fitting in there, right? And that's why it's a, a continuing problem. I don't know. Huh. Okay. Well, then maybe it's just me, and that's not a design flaw. No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, it just it makes it dangerous. Actually, yeah. Because your brake pads get soaked in oil, and the next thing you know, it can't stop. Yeah. I, I mean, I've, uh, I had, uh, I've got an 81 as well, and when I bought it, um, I basically had, uh, I basically shipped it to Anton Larjadere. I, I was still kind of a novice mechanic, and that was the first thing I noticed. I took the um, uh, rear wheel off, and yeah, everything was coated in oil. Uh, although I think that yeah. might might have been a different seal failure. I don't know if it was from the uh, uh, brake actuator there, but okay. I and look, going back on what you said, the seat lock or the seat hinge there. Very problematic. That was a, a plastic part 
um, that oh, ran, ran through the, the Paralever uh, GSs, uh, the later 80s and early 90s models. Somehow or not, and I especially, Marcus, in, in your situation, were you, uh, did you have a solo or a dual seat on yours? A solo. Okay. So, yeah, you've got the little thumb screws that you've got to take off and then the seat latch. Um, I, I will say this. It's a much more user-friendly format than swapping a solo seat onto a 88 on uh, GS. That I mean, that was... Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're... That's... Yeah. Uh, it makes it real easy, comparatively speaking. But um, I, I guess... In hindsight, you still had the thumb screws, so I imagine you just said to hell with the with the seat lock and just use the little thumb screws to keep it on. Yeah, exactly. And when I went to HVN in Germany, they have a brilliant solution for that solo seat, which um, I don't know if I posted it on ADV Rider, but they used they eliminate that little solo seat latch on the back mm-hmm. between the back of the edge of the seat and the rack. And they used parts from the shifting linkage. You know that little, it's like a, a ball and socket yeah. piece. Uh, so they took the, the the male part of that and and screwed it onto the subframe. And then the female part of it, they uh, attached it to one of those rubber, it's like a little rubber cylinder with a threaded bolt on it. That goes into the back edge of the seat. On both corners, the linkage screw, screws into it, and then they have a little, uh, they fastened a little finger tab, which probably isn't making any sense at all, but that linkage snaps onto the, the male part that's uh, bolted onto the frame, and it creates this rub, um, sort of a rubber stem that can shift with the seat, mm. and it also clamps it down in a really ingenious way. I'll, I'll send you a picture. Of yeah, it. yeah, I'd like, I, I'd like to see that. I just think it's brilliant. Yeah, that will... And then, speaking of um, one other thing, you mentioned uh, Anton Larchadere. Yeah. I, I went by his place in Virginia when I came back on my trip, <laughs> from my trip, and he added a front brake pressure switch for the brake light on the front brake, which is brilliant. Okay, I've not heard of this. Yeah, I don't know where he came up with this part, but it just uh, screwed in line into the the braking mechanism and creates a hydraulic brake switch, which is another failing part, not only the front brake switch, but the rear brake switch. That little rubber boot that covers the electronics, eventually it's going to get wet and packed with mud, and I've had those rear brake switches fail often which I replaced with just a little Chinese plunger-style switch, which works great. But that's another thing that I think they should have fixed. Yeah, I'm sure if we, if we talked about it longer, the list would get pretty, uh, pretty deep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, okay, Marcus. So <clears throat> here's the last one for you. Uh, so you mentioned you've, okay. you've got a uh, 7590S. Uh, of course, you've got your 81GS. I'm going to say those are probably two of your favorite in the 247 model line. And one thing I always ask everybody, what's your quote-unquote Mount Rushmore of the Airhead run? Uh, so I'm just let's assume that those would be two of the four. 
uh, you would put up as your favorite. What What are a couple other ones? If you if if you had some unlimited funds and you could go out and buy two additional Airheads uh, to put in your garage, what might wow. those be? Wow. Mm. Um. <clears throat> you know, I think I think one of them. Of course, I go for the rarest ones possible. There's a version. Um, what was it called? I think it was only available in South Africa. It's a it's a late '80s GS. I want to say '88 or so, and it doesn't have the PD tank, but it has a similar tank. It's it's basically an '88 GS. Are um, you thinking of the the Kalahari? That might be the one. Yeah, okay, so that was in the later in the model run. That was like one of the last GSs that came out. I, I think that was 95 and 96. Blue frame, white uh, yeah. body, body work. Yeah. Yep, that's the one. Yeah, so basically you've got a paralever, quote-unquote, era model GS. So R100, paralever suspension, beefier suspension on the front end, but it used... The GS early first generation GS subframe, uh, and then also sort of like without the fairing, so you still had the plastic headlight nacelle and and that and that kind of gauge setup. So it was a little bit of uh, the best of both worlds, I guess, as far as practi- practicality and design. So that is a very cool bike. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That one, and then I'd have to say I would always just go back to. The early GS, like the bike that I had before I altered it. <laughs> if I could have, you know, this monstrous adventure machine and the classic R80 GS, um, you know, for going up the ski valley, twisty roads and going to town and and going on really lightweight uh, adventure trips. I think I think that's, that's just a fantastic bike. And also there's the... Uh, what is it, the RS, which is the same platform as the GS, which has the low fender, but this exact same geometry. I think the final drive has a different ratio. Mm-hmm. But uh, that one I would also be interested in. So that's that's three, I guess. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> well, well, we'll approve all those choices. That's well done. Marcus, the, go ahead. The LS. Was it the LS? I don't know. A lot of people take, I think it's the LS, and they turn it into a GS just by buying a PD tank and a PD seat and a high fender. Oh, you! Oh, you're! Oh, maybe you're thinking of the uh, R80 ST. ST, that's the one. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And those. Uh, yep. And look, uh, I've I've only driven one of those once, but those have really have a reputation uh, of being one of the better handling airheads uh, of of the of the run. Uh, so. Well, look, Marcus, uh, first off, I just want to say thanks for spending some time with us and revisiting this. I know it was a little bit of a trip down memory lane, so I appreciate you taking some time to go back and refresh refresh your memory, maybe look at some notes uh, and, and bring this story back to life after all these years. And you've really got some some great insight, some great stories, great information. I think folks are really going to enjoy listening to. So, thanks for the time. Great work. Of course, and thank you so so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed it, and it's good for me to go back and go through my notes and remember all these things. And 
you know, it's, it's like flipping through those journal pages brings back a lot. So thank you for that. Indeed. That's a wrap for this week. Great insight on many levels from Marcus. You can find archive posts about his motorcycle and trip on Adventure Rider under the username Roads of Colin, or visit his old blog post, marcusbestrtw.wordpress.com. Until next time, so long, everybody. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time.